just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. Uh, greetings, dear listeners. This is uh, Jonah Goldberg. This is another exciting, well, to be determined whether it's exciting, episode of the Remnant podcast. This week's episode is once again brought to you by Conversations with Bill Crystal. We'll have more about that in a little bit. But today we have a special guest. He's actually, I guess I first met you 10 years ago at yeah. a conference at Oglethorpe. Oglethorpe yeah, College, yeah. yep. That, that disembodied voice you hear is none other than Jay Cost, the author of the uh, great new book, Price, The Price of Greatness, Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, and The Price of American Oligarchy, or something very close to that. Creation of American Oligarchy. Creation of American Oligarchy, I apologize. And so as you were saying, apparently one of the things you have to do these days, you have to, it's sort of like Mortal Kombat. You have to pick two founding fathers and you know, have them fight each other. Right. We'll get to all of that in a little bit. But uh, for listeners who don't know, uh, Jay is also now an adjunct, adjunct, associate. What, what is your title? Visiting. Visiting. Visiting scholar. Visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, which makes me very happy. Uh, you, you're a contributing editor of Weekly Standard. You write a column for National Review. You do something for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. And you used to be a secret poll monkey. Yes. And I don't mean that in terms of like some sort of Furby dress up thing, but like you actually used to do poll stuff, polling right. stuff, uh, cephology as it were. Right. Cephology. Um, which I wasn't good at, which is why I sort of re I, 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 but you made a name for yourself at what was your, what was your secret name? Horse race blog? Horse race blog. Yeah. Yeah. Those yeah. were the days. Those were the days. 2004. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I, uh, I, I did a, a weighted average with, uh, with the 2004 polls, which, Nobody had been doing at the time. It's like sort of basically like, what the real clear politics averages. Yeah, but I would do like more like closer to what Nate Silver does, where uh-huh. he puts a confidence interval and says like there's this chance of this happening. Uh-huh. What I did, it was very rudimentary. I mean, uh-huh. it was nothing as as it was still witchcraft to me. Yeah, but, uh-huh. yeah. But you made it. You know, you were you 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 got you kind of got your name out there first as a polling guy, and then you decided you didn't want to do that anymore. Right, I did. Yeah, I didn't like doing. Um, uh, elections analysis for a couple reasons. Um, first of all, there's just people who were better at it than I was. I mean, you know, this, and, and that's a tough thing to come If to every ask. pundit had that attitude, I know. You know, it would, it would more than decimate the ranks of, of American punditry. I know. Yeah. I know. But, um, and, you know, like take, take Nate Silver. I mean, first of all, he's, he, he just doesn't, he and I sort of had a breakout, both of us in 2008. And he was, he, he, his ability to, to write good content just far outstretched mine. I remember being at the end of the 2008 Democratic primary. I remember just being exhausted and he was just continuing to go and his ability to do graphics and stuff. So all of that ended up kind of making me feel like, well, you know, maybe this isn't for me. And then compounding that is if you, it's, I can liken, uh, elections analysis to the similar to the prices right um, where the goal is to get as close to the Republican share of the vote 
but never ever go over right, right? because if you go if you if you're bullish on the republicans then you're just a hack right, right. <laughs> it's okay to be bullish on the democrats but not on the republicans and i that, that's the other thing for me is that i have a rooting interest in elections that was such that you know you're saying um, Nate Silver does not well i think that he does a better job than i did of letting the data tell tell him what's going to happen okay that's fair um like so for instance in 2012 i really I really wanted Obama to lose, and mm-hmm. I think that induced me to sort of be like, you know, Obama is going to lose, mm-hmm. you know? So after that election, I just decided, you know, I had, you know, I, I started after that election writing Republic No More, which was my second book. Mm-hmm. And I got really interested in the issue of political corruption, which took me back to political philosophy, which is where I got started in graduate school was political philosophy. So oh. I figured, let's just do this instead. I, I have a and all, and from a market perspective, I think I fill a, a niche in the political punditry market that uh, that is not being oversupplied now. Oh, I think that's correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We can talk about the disequilibrium of, of, of supply and demand of, of American right-wing punditry anytime you like. So we're going to get to some rank punditry stuff at the end, in fact, about this, about Brett Kavanaugh and, and all the rest. But why don't we start because the single – I, I want to apologize in advance to, to listeners. I've read a bunch of the reviews of uh, Price of Greatness. I've read some of your stuff about it. I – when I got done with my book, I – had first of all a huge stack of reading. I still haven't read, uh, you know, Jake Tapper's novel, which I promised him I would do, and 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 it's kind of like the kid who gets locked and whose dad locks him in his closet and says, because he caught him smoking and says, smoke this entire carton of cigarettes. The idea of going back and reading about the founding for pleasure right. after having had to do it for so long for work is uh, which I'm just not ready. My batteries are not recharged. And I don't have the facility for it that you do um, anyway. So I could probably describe what your book is about mm-hmm. from reading the reviews and whatnot. But why don't you tell me what your book is about? Sure. Well, I got the idea for the book from from my second book, Price of Greatness, where I there were a couple things that just kind of stuck in my mind, right? Um, that like Madison and Hamilton and uh, the book's about Madison and Hamilton. And um, the two of them were allies and then they turned into opponents. Um, and nowadays, the contemporary sort of attitude toward that is Hamilton was right, Madison was wrong. But looking at a lot of Madison's criticisms of Hamilton's program, I noticed that he actually had some valid points, mm-hmm. like particularly about the the Bank of the United States. Madison was really worried that the Bank of the United States was going to be this corrupt institution. And the first bank wa- wasn't, but the second bank was. Um, and then when I started working through because my second book was a history of political corruption. Then I got to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Uh And it really, I was really struck by the ideas that Madison had laid down about the bank were actually also applicable to Fannie and Freddie. Hmm. And that the two institutions, even though they're separated by, you know, 150 years, are actually really kind of similar. There's a lot of overlap between them. And so the book is really about um, about the story. Both in terms of their function, but also the level of corruption. Yeah, and how both of them were – so the bank – the second bank in particular, um, both of them were – Private organizations, private for-profit organizations that had a public charter that also carried with it certain privileges uh, that were came from the government. And both of the institutions used them to basically 
um, use their public subsidies to enter the political fray mm-hmm. and try and influence politics um, and did so in ways that had long, you know, sort of big detrimental uh, effects occurred as a consequence. So I've just been really interested in this stuff for a while. Um, and then the other thing that was sort of drove me to write the book was I didn't feel like anybody had written a book that was fair to both Madison and Hamilton. So for most of the American history, it's been Hamilton was the skunk and Jefferson was the sort of the savior and Madison was his lieutenant. Um, so he was lieutenant savior. Um, and in the last 40 years or so, it's kind of shifted around. But I don't really like either of those narratives. I don't mm-hmm. think either of those narratives do them justice. So the book was sort of making the, the big point of the book is that there are these sort of like legitimate trade-offs to be made in public policy between on the one hand, you know, Hamilton wanted to develop the national economy and he had certain strategies for that, strategies which have been used again and again and again because they do work. But um, on the other hand, they these these approaches to public policy really can disrupt power relations. And that's what I've been really interested in that for a while. Like I, the, the left is really anxious about inequalities of wealth, which don't bother. Well, let's, before we get to that, sure, sure, sure. Back up. Yeah. Uh, describe for the for the listener the two different visions of, okay. of Hamilton and Madison, because yeah. I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah. So Hamilton's view was sort of um, I liken Hamilton's approach to the government as being like a head coach. Um, where he's going to sort of favor this group. You know, you, the head coach is going to start Tom Brady if he has Tom Brady, right? And he's going to, you know, Johnny Manziel can ride the bench because Brady is more important to the success of the team. So Hamilton had a similar view. So picking winners and losers, picking winners and losers, but for the good of everybody, right? Because mm-hmm. Johnny Manziel will get the ring at the end of the season too, right? So picking winners and losers. So Hamilton's sort of approach was, you know, the country was in dire economic straits. We had this handful of people who were wealthy and they're going to make a bet on the country one way or the other, we have to make sure they make a bet on its success. So we're going to tailor public policy to favor them. But in so doing, we're going to capture their interests and reappropriate them to the national interests, sort of like coordinating, right? Madison, on the other hand, had a view of public policy much closer to a head coach or excuse me, a referee, Mm -hmm. right? So Madison is really interested in as a matter of fact, in a letter to George Washington, he says what government really needs is a neutral umpire, Mm -hmm. right? Um, which is, you know, an easy, easy reference point for 21st century America. Somebody to call the balls and strikes fairly, right? It doesn't matter who, how poor you are. Everybody gets treated the same by the government. Um, and so these two visions end up clashing, right? And it's not just that, it's not just that the two of them were speaking past one another, which they were, I think, in a lot of respects, but that when Madison becomes Madison makes all these has all these warnings about Hamilton's economic program like this is going to imbalance power relations in the country and it's going to be a problem. And it was. But then when Madison becomes president, he comes grudgingly to the conclusion that he has to do more to facilitate national economic development. And he uses Hamilton's program. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't you know it, it creates corruption again. So it's sort of like they were both right and they were both wrong. And the argument of my book is that it's because there's these ideas that are sort of inherent to the national project of, on the one hand, you know, national development 
and then also republicanism, like as Lincoln said, of the people, by the people, for the people, and that some and liberalism and, and liberalism is the third one. In this case, in the story of my book, the two values that really sort of rub up against each other and clash are nationalism and republicanism, and sometimes we have to make legitimate trade-offs. Mm-hmm. And so, the thinking about Madison and Hamilton as sort of like, well, he was right and he was wrong is not the best way to look at it. The better better way to look at it is that the two of them were reflecting aspects of our national creed, which is in tension with itself. See, now, the re- there's a re- couple of reasons why I like this. Because first of all, I think so much of the the current sort of intellectual consensus that Hamilton is better because he was the better rapper is just completely wrong, right? right. Um, and um, But also, the so I talk about this a bit in, in, in my book, but there's an inherent tension within the Enlightenment, right? And there's, in fact, uh, and I think one of the things that's bad about Steven Pinker's argument about the Enlightenment is that he treats the Enlightenment as if it's just one thing, right? And all the stuff he likes for the last 300 years, that's the Enlightenment stuff. And everything that's bad, that's not the Enlightenment right. stuff, right? And a lot of the left's critics, of a lot of left-wing critics of my book, critics of, of Pinker's book, they almost sort of do the same thing. They just say the Enlightenment was bad, right? And... Uh, one of the things that I talk about at somewhere in my book is the is sort of the metaphorical differences between the French Enlightenment and the in the English Enlightenment, right, or the Scottish Enlightenment, and and the differences between the English Garden and the French Garden, right. In the French Garden, it's like the gardens at Versailles, where man takes his where the humans impose human will on nature and they bend these plants and shrubs into these perfectly geometric shapes and curly cues and whatnot, right? And the Eng- vision of the English garden is a zone of freedom, right? And uh, Yuval Levin, who we're both fans of, um, and if you're not, we'll just stop this yeah. podcast now. Um, in uh, his book on Burke and Payne, he makes this point that, which is interesting because it's it sort of mirrors what you're talking about with Hamilton and, and um, Madison, that... Uh, that the the verbs of conservatism are all about space, right? Are the metaphors about the, the adjectives about conser- are about space, zones of liberty, freedom, you know, the, the English garden where all you're supposed to do is you're supposed to protect it from poachers and from varmints and otherwise you let the residents of the garden be the best versions of themselves. And uh, the progressive sort of Tom Paine verbs and metaphors and, and adjectives are all about movement, movement forward, going in a certain direction, right? And this is, I think, what you've all would argue, what I certainly argue, is this is an inherent tension within the Enlightenment itself. And so it's always, it manifests itself in interesting new ways and new times and new places. And it sounds to me like very much, this is what you're talking about with where Hamilton has this vision of, you don't want to necessarily call it progressive, but you can for in a loose sense, right, of, of, of Republican social engineering of a certain kind that is going to guide us forward on a certain path. And then you have the more deist kind of watchmaker, uh, neutral rules for free society and um, and no picking winners and lo- losers, which is sort of the Madisonian version. And these things are always going to be in tension, right? No matter which, which avatars for these two views you pick. Yeah. I, I- that's I think that's a very good way to put it. And I think that's one of the reasons why Hamilton has become um, sort of celebrated on the left. That, mm-hmm. that there's a Hamilton has long been um, uh, admired by conservatives. 
Um, it was actually it was Henry Cabot Lodge who sort of resurrected Hamilton's memory in the late 19th century because they would look back and in, in like you can imagine in sort of the high watermark of industrial capitalism in say 1895 you look back That's a good you, year yeah you look <laughs> back and you say well who from the founding can we relate to you know is it the physiocrat jefferson right or you know the plantation owner washington right no it was hamilton they could see in hamilton the seeds of what america had become right and so um hamilton for a long time is the sort of in the domain of pro-business conservatives, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but conservatism, as you know, is a lot more than just pro-business, right? right? There's other aspects. But I think recently, particularly with um, – as the left – a couple things has hap- have happened on the left. The first thing is the decline of industrial labor right. and craft labor has declined. And so the, the left has gotten less work-oriented um, and frankly wealthier, especially on the intellectual level. Right nowadays, you don't have guys like Sidney Hillman, mm-hmm. right, and Walter Ruther and – and, you know, those sorts of working class um, defenders within the left. And then also you have the rise of identity politics and Hamilton being sort of an identity politics, you know, Yahtzee because he's from the Caribbean. And right. He has, you know, his parentage is in question and all this stuff. Um, so it, but, you know, intellectually, we might have to call this podcast, by the way. Identity politics, Yahtzee. Right. <laughs> uh, but we'll see if it, the theme continues. And, Go on. But Hamilton is kind of a tinkerer. Right. Which is sort of the progressive kind of idea right. now. I'm going to roll up my sleeves and you need to be over here doing this thing and you need to be doing over here doing this thing. And if you do this and you do that and he does that, we'll all prosper. Right. Um, now, Hamilton was not uh, Hamilton had sort of he wasn't progressive in his, you know, he because he, it's very business oriented. Right. It's very economic oriented. And it's very much like, you know, I want you to do what you want to do, but I want, you know, you do it over here and we're right. going to coordinate and, and the the word um, uh, that uh, Peter – I think it's Peter Frederici who is a, a professor who wrote a really good book on Hamilton. The word that he uses is a harmonization. Uh-huh. Hamilton's political system can be seen as an effort to bring about uh, – elites bringing about facilitating harmonization, which you can see how that would sort of fit into the progressive mindset. I, I wrote an article a couple – months back for NR on how the the left has become Hamiltonian uh, in this sort of not not so if you think about the substance of Hamiltonian policy it's very conservative like you know tax cuts would be Hamiltonian but if you think about the way Hamilton conceived the relationship of the government between private individuals um, that's much more in keeping with the progressive kind of but wasn't um, wasn't Herbert Crowley pretty high on Hamilton? He was. He was yeah. like Jeffersonian ends with Hamiltonian, Hamiltonian means. means. That yeah, was the buzzword. Yeah. And uh, which just reminded me, I just happened to have this handy. Um, Herbert Crowley had this, Herbert, for, the, for listeners who don't know, Herbert Crowley was sort of the godfather of American progressivism. He wrote a book called The Promise of American Life. He was the first editor of the New Republic. He was kind of crazy. He certainly ended his life kind of crazy. But there are very few. He basically inspired uh, Teddy Roosevelt to become a progressive in a lot of ways. Um, anyway, uh, he has this. I just happened to have a copy of not my last book, but the one before in the office. And as you were talking about Hamiltonian means, it sparked something in my head. This is uh, so the the traditional view of Lady Justice, right? Is got the blindfold with scales, and it's this neutral arbiter, very much the sort of Madisonian thing, right? And then 
So Herbert Crowley says we've got to get rid of the idea, the traditional understanding of lady justice. And instead, he writes, in the past, common law justice has been appropriately symbolized as a statuesque lady with a bandage over her eyes and a scale in her fair hands. The figurative representation of social justice would be a different kind of woman equipped with a different collection of instruments. Instead of having her eyes blindfolded, she would wear perched upon her nose a most searching and forbidding pair of spectacles, one which combined the vision of a microscope, a telescope, and a photographic camera. Instead of holding scales in her hand, she might perhaps be figured as possessing a much more homely and serviceable set of tools. She would have a hoe with which to cultivate the social garden, a watering pot, with which to refresh it, a barometer with which to measure and preserve the social air, and the indispensable typewriter and filing cabinet which would, with which to record the behavior of society, having within her the heart of a mother and the passion of taking, for taking sides. She has disliked the inhuman and mechanical task, task of holding a balance between verbal weights and measures, right? So basically, Her- Herbert Crowley totally embraces the idea of throwing out blind justice in favor of the government, truly picking winners and losers in every conceivable way. Yeah. But Hamilton wouldn't say something like that, right? Uh, Probably. No, I don't think so. But I I mean, Hamilton was, you know, you can imagine the the problem, the problem with that. I mean, it sounds, first of all, you and I, it sounds horrifying. No, no, it's friggin' it's authoritarianism writ, you know, before your naked eye, right? And the you know the problem the and Madison had this real from a from a from a um the standpoint of think about facilitating national unity um because the country wasn't really a country yet I mean it was still really thirteen states right, right. and they had different idea Hamilton and Madison had different ideas for how to facilitate national unity Hamilton thought um well what we need to do is we need to get the wealthy thinking looking away from the state governments as the source of power and therefore their wealth and then get them looking to you know New York where the capital was mm-hmm. Madison's view was very different and his view was we need to convince people that they're going to get a fair shake from the government uh and 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 the 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 fact that Hamilton won most of the early policy battles in the government and all of the benefits of Hamiltonian economics all went in the same direction, really created the vitriol of the politics of the 1790s. Mm-hmm. So when you have a government that picks winners and losers and they all – they the losers all, get pissed. The lose, Especially when they lose again and again and again and again. That is a – that is a recipe for civil discord, mm-hmm. which is exactly what happens in the 1790s, right? I mean, everybody seems to like – Give me a, just a quick example of how the losers lost and the winners won in sort of a practical term. Right. Well, OK. Um, so if – let's say in 1787, um, government debt was trading for pennies on a dollar, OK? Um, and Hamilton's plan was basically to offer full repayment of, of, the, of the federal debt. So if you knew Hamilton or you had some inkling about what he was going to do, um, for instance, if you were a member of Congress, like let's say you're Jeremiah Wadsworth of Connecticut and you're lodging guy, but okay. yeah, you're lodging in uh, in New York and you know what's going on. So you send emissaries back to the back country of the Carolinas because they have no idea what's going on. And you buy government debt, state government debt for pennies on a dollar and you you bring it back up to New York. And then after Hamilton basically repays the debt, 
you get uh, basically uh, windfall profits. Mm. And then on top of that, Hamilton charters a national bank. And the bank, uh, a piece of stock in the bank cost $400, but only 100 of those dollars uh, had to be redeemed in, in hard currency. The rest could be paid in government debt certificates. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine that in the gov- and, and just like Fannie and Freddie, because of the, the, the national bank was holding federal tax revenue, it was a guaranteed winner. So it, from just from like 17 cents on the dollar to like this guaranteed moneymaker over the course of like four years, you got this huge bounty. Right. And who were the losers in this uh, schema? First of all, people who weren't close to the seat of power. Right. Second of all, people who had been primarily invested in land tended to be losers because Hamilton's program increased the price of government debt, which made it harder to buy land. So that's going to disadvantage the southern plantation class. And also the states that had paid their their state debts off, like Virginia and North Carolina and Georgia had paid their debts off during the 1780s, and they're not going to get the big right. payoff from the federal government. So Hamilton ends up creating winners and losers, and they're all the same group of people on both sides. No, that's helpful. So, um, again, I'm much more sympathetic, you know, particularly if you could, you know, take slavery out of the equation. I'm much more sympathetic to the Madisonian right. view. But isn't there an argument to be made? I mean, I can talk this round, I could talk the square, but I'm more and more convinced that the mo- one of the, mo- the most important ingredient for the founding of America uh, was were not the abstract arguments of the founding fathers, as important as those were. It was the fact that these people basically were more British than the British, right? They took a whole bunch of British principles, British ideals, refined them, carried them to their logical conclusion the way even the British or the English didn't. And you find that you know, the example I often use is the American Fourth Amendment has its roots in an ancient English custom that says a man's home is his castle. And they take this and they refine it and then they codify it and they make it abstract and then they put it on paper. And it's more intense than anything that actually existed is simply a cultural norm in England. Right. And so but there's an art. Isn't there an argument to be made, uh, as at least as a devil's advocate, that breaking the rules of government impartiality is maybe necessary for building a nation, but it's not necessarily for, you know, that, that you got to bend some rules to get the thing up and running. Right. I mean, if, if it's like you're building a hotel and you got to deal with corrupt unions, right. And you just, sometimes you just got to do that stuff to get it done. I don't want to sound like I'm advocating Trumpism, but you know what I mean? Absolutely. And one of the reasons why a lot of South American countries went belly up is they took American style constitutions without having the American style culture underneath it to sustain it and reflect it and on paper. I assume that's the standard defense of Hamilton, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And um, so a good example of that would be in Hamilton was drawing on, for instance, David Hume. Right. So th- there's this sort of debate in the 1700s in England about, well, what is corrupt? What, what's corruption? Right. And and B- B- Bolingbroke and Cato, Trenchard and Gordon hate corruption. Right. The, the idea of the king giving patronage to members of parliament, buying them off just undermines republicanism right and Hume makes a point well look you know this is actually is this we can call it we can use whatever i think the phrase Hume uses we can apply any invidious appellation we choose but the fact of the matter is is that we 
need to have, we need to yoke self-interest to the common good. Mm-hmm. And patronage or corruption, whatever you want to call it, is actually essential to that. And, it, and Hume makes the point that this is actually how England has maintained, or Britain has maintained its mixed constitution because the commons, Hume argues, is so theoretically powerful that it could overwhelm the government. But the king has access to patronage and he buys off enough members of Congress and or parliament. And when you take those with the genuinely public-spirited members, you have a majority in favor of the king's program. And that was Hamilton's argument at the Constitutional Convention behind closed doors, is what he wanted to do, was he wanted to allow the elites to sort of govern and also give them the tools to govern. Um, Didn't he also want to make president a lifetime yes, thing and senator? And Senate for life. And the idea behind that would be you, you liberate the natural aristocrats in society to govern for the public interest above and sort of over the petty concerns of politics. And then also you you give them the tools to sort of manage these self-interests, right, um, was sort of basically Hamilton's approach. And there's really something to be said for that in a lot of respects. Um, and I think that it, 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 there's, it seems grubby, but – it's actually really smart. I'll give you an example of how, like, it's sort of well, – Americans, on the other hand, first of all, Hamilton's ideas didn't go anywhere. But Americans have this sort of penny-wise, pound-foolish attitude toward government. Like, you know, for instance, Benjamin Franklin pr- w- thought we shouldn't pay members of Congress anything, which was a terrible idea. But, like, if you think about congressional staffers on, say, the Senate Finance Committee – and how much inf- – like the senior staffers on the Senate com- Finance Committee, they – we pay them pennies of what – on the dollar of what they could get in the private sector. Right. Right? We don't pay them what they're actually worth. And so what they end up doing is they end up sort of using their, their, their stint on the committee as a temporary gig until they can get something that actually is – They monetize their experience. They afterwards. monetize yep. their experience. And they – and why do they do that? Well, they do it because they're not actually getting paid what they're worth. And we should appreciate that – you know, if you, we want, and this was Hamilton's great insight, uh, that we could, like Hume said, give it whatever invidious appellation you want, but it, it's necessary because we, in Hamilton, in that the convention says we've relied too long on pure patriotism to move government in the right direction. And we shouldn't assume that we're better than the rest of the world. The history of the world teaches that if we want government to thrive, we have to connect the self-interest of certain people to the public interest of the whole community and that government is essential to doing that. And that was what his economic policies were. And I think, you know, I am sort of instinctively Madisonian. I have a real sort of, I have a real thing about fair play. Me too. Um, but the ultimately in the the book my book is more is sort of straight down the middle because you know the best endorsement for Hamiltonian economics is that when Madison's president after the war of 1812 he adopts it mm-hmm. you know so it turned out Hamilton was right on a lot of really important things that we had to you know they got rid of the first bank of of the United States in 1811 uh and then the government couldn't borrow money during the war of 1812 it couldn't borrow money they needed to get money so one of the things I like about your thesis, as, as I understand it, is that there is just inherent, as we were saying before, is there inherent in, in the Enlightenment, in the American project, American creed, whatever you want to call it, uh, um, different principles, different orientations that are just intention, right? Um, and one of the things I like about this is that um, I am against 
philosophical, political, psychological monism of all kinds, right? By which I mean, I, I wrote a G file about this a couple of years ago. I'm against all versions of one thingism, right? Uh, there's that great scene in City Slickers where um, where Curly says to Bill Crystal, he says, "You know, I've learned in my life that um, at the end of my life, and I'm butchering this, that it all, that everything always boils down to just one thing." And Billy Crystal says, what's that one thing? And and Curly says, that's up to you, right? That's completely wrong. Yeah. And um, it is it is Hallmark card BS. That's, it's what the Tocqueville will call a clear but false idea, right? And in the sense that a healthy society, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time on the sort of literature about where modernity comes from. And one of the things that is like crucial to it is the chopping up of meaning. That, you know, you need it, – it's not just pluralism in the way we talk about in terms of politics. You need institutional pluralism where different institutions have buy-in to the system. Even if they they lose a round, they understand that it's in their long-term interests to preserve the system as a whole, right? right? And and so when you have a plurality of institutions, you have a plurality of elites and, and, and sort of primordial would-be elites who cycle through all of these institutions and they have variegated and bifurcated or chopped up. Uh, I guess the word I'm looking for is divided uh, loyalties to these institutions, different sources of meaning in their lives, right? I mean, uh, one of our biggest sources of meaning is our the meaning of our little private civilization that is our families. Mm-hmm. But we also have meaning from our friends, from our professional lives, from our interests. You're a Pittsburgh guy. Right. And the key is is having all of these different – a whole portfolio of meaning in your life is sort of both the key to a happy life. Like if you make – your wife, I love my wife dearly. If I made her my one thing and I just sort of, you know, was waiting for her when she left off work every day with a boom box that I was holding over my head, you know, right. it'd be really creepy and I'd lose my wife, right? right? And and so I think this is one of these healthy tensions within American civilization of understanding and it's it's the essence of conservatism, right? I mean, I, I've been writing I've been making this argument for years that the defining feature of conservatism is comfort with contradiction. Right. The idea that there are trade-offs in everything, right? And that you everything has to meet some kind of prudential balancing test. And all forms of totalitarianism boil down to one thingism, the tribe over everything else, mm-hmm. the race over everything else, the nation class. over every, class, right? And 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 this is one of my problems with the current fetishization of nationalism that we have in certain corners of the right. I have no problem with, you know, people, listeners are tired of me talking about this, but a little nationalism is a healthy thing, right? Um, it helps bind the, the country together, gives you a sense of identity, gives you a sense that this place is mine, right. and that's why I love it. But all poisons are determined by the dose, and too much nationalism, a monistic nationalism, is inherently unhealthy and dangerous because... If, if that is your, your ne plus ultra, then anything that stands in way of your proposed understanding of the national will is traitorous or dangerous or needs to be overcome. And that's how you lose institutional pluralism and that's how you lose liberty, right? And so I like the idea that you got to kind of figure it out as you go. Right? It's, not, it's not philosophical pragmatism. It's this understanding that life is full of trade-offs and that we have competing principles and that we... Anytime you take one principle too far, it will encroach on other principles. And so it's always going to be this balancing thing. Right. right? Yeah. Like a a good example of that is, you know, Lincoln during the Civil War. Right. Spending habeas corpus. I mean, if you 
place indiv- the individual rights above everything else, then you could make the argument that Lincoln was, you know, the, the country's greatest monster. I know some people who make right, that Right, exactly, right? <laughs> but if you think about it in terms of, you know, the, the bigger picture – um, and that sometimes the ends do justify the means. Sometimes you know? they do, yeah. And, that, and a lot of that is it's sort of like the way Potter Stewart defined pornography, right? You know, right. when you see it, right? It's also sort of like what you. That's where this sort of like where the the rule book just sort of has this blank blank page on it, and that's where statesmanship be, happens, right? It's right. Sort of this kind of balancing test, and it's one of the reasons why I think Madison doesn't get the credit that he deserves. Um, as president, um, because, you know, when he Hamilton's economic policies were all sort of relentlessly one sided and it created this political strife in the country. Madison, when he appropriated Hamilton's policies, he and Henry Clay and John C. Calhoun during his nationalist phase, um, they they broadened the base of it. So they did important things like they, um, you know, they chartered a second bank, but they 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 also chartered like 18 branches to spread throughout the country so everybody could see the benefits of the bank. Um, Hamilton's industrial protection was emphasized bounties or direct subsidies to in- manufacturing firms. The, the Republicans, the Jeffersonians used uh, tariffs. So the broad uh, tax benefits for whole classes of goods that then could be balanced with protections for other goods. They emphasized internal improvements, right? And so the idea was is that everybody could see themselves getting something out of the program, what Clay called the American system, and that would bind the country together. And I think that's sort of something that sort of when people celebrate Hamilton's economic brilliance, which is worth celebrating, I mean, this is something that Hamilton missed, Right. Like he couldn't you can't keep asking people to wait in expectation that they're going to get something from the government down the line. When one group keeps getting stuff, it's going to create political turmoil. And where and so Madison uses the same policy tools that Hamilton does. But whereas, you know, Hamilton's creates this whole decade of, you know, political turmoil, you know, the era of good feelings was a real thing and it really did was a product of this kind of synthesis in Madison and Henry Clay and these sort of second generation Republican Jeffersonians pulled off. And that's sort of an example of where I think statesmanship is is a really important uh, quality in politics. It's it's something it's easily overlooked. Statesmanship right. is easily overlooked. It's sort of ineffable. Right. I mean, it's sort of like Disraelian muddling through. It's right. just understanding where you got to give ground and where you don't. And and so I mean, just on Lincoln for just two seconds, because uh, as you know, I'm a charter member and one time. Uh, first treasurer of the International Association of Woodrow Wilson haters, and, <laughs> yeah. um, and the thing that always infuriated when one of the things that always infuriated me about Wilson was that he was against. He thought it was one of the great tragedies of American history that the North won the Civil War and that the slaves were freed, but he loved Lincoln, right? Right. So, and <laughs> and the reason he loved Lincoln was he thought he was he was a dictator. But he thought that was awesome, right? right? And he's just so he loved the way Lincoln used power, like suspending habeas corpus and all that kind of stuff. He just thought he was doing it for the wrong ends, right. you know, <laughs> which is like the most evil interpretation of Lincoln imagine, right? The proper conservative understanding of Lincoln is he did some regrettable things that were necessary in the heat of a civil war, right? right? And uh, and and 
Wilson's approach to it is, no, he actually likes the means. He didn't like the ends. Right. And that's just, you know, that's you should fair. go to hell for that. <laughs> um, Wilson's awful. I get on, on Twitter. I, I often I think they're your they're members of your society because uh, I'm always like James Buchanan is the worst president. <laughs> and, and but people are like, no, Wilson is which Wilson was terrible. But uh, well, we, we can we can revisit that. Um, I have one last question before we get to the modern stuff. Sure. Um, so one of the reasons why I I shouldn't just say I hate it. I have a love hate relationship with writing intellectual history stuff. Mm-hmm. Because the problem with intellectual history is that, you know, I remember in liberal fascism, I spent a month on a paragraph just because you have to figure out some things or you can't move on. Right. And the idea of having, you know, for a pundit who writes, you know, blog posts and 700 word columns to have to spend three weeks reading books (laughs) to write a paragraph is infuriating to me. And but sometimes you just get hung up on stuff. And one of the things that I got hung up on working on, uh, Suicide of the West was I'd always been told that the founding fathers were immensely influenced by John Locke, right? And that uh, they were the tr- – John Locke's founder of classical liberalism, life, liberty, and property becomes life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I was always told or I was always led to believe that this all came from Locke's second treatise, right? And I understand the parallels. That's where the life, liberty, and property stuff comes and all that. I found that very hard to actually document. And it seems to me, and I just want your take on this, and uh, it could be that I just, you know, Jack notwithstanding, my research is just bad. But, um, uh, uh, you know, Jefferson did not have a copy in his library of the Second Treatise. But Jefferson considered Locke one of the three greatest humans who ever lived. And it turns out, if you read Adams on Locke, if you read what, you know, Locke does not really appear in the Federalist Papers very much. I mean, there's a couple, there is like a, there's a mention in the Anti-Federalist Papers. Right. Um, Montesquieu is mentioned in the Federalist Papers. Right. And it turns out that, at least I would argue, that while the Second Treatise stuff certainly was out there in the air, particularly in the sermons of a lot of pastors who were hugely influential on the founding era, right, that it's really his empiricism, right? It's the, the it's his, what they would call back the natural philosophy stuff, which is what really erodes the divine right of kings and therefore inherited privilege and all that kind of stuff, that that's the stuff, at least going to Adams and some others, that they were deeply, deeply indebted to. And the second treatise thing was more, I don't want to denigrate it, but it was, it was, that was more trite in a way, in the sense that these were ideas that were percolating in the ether and the, the really sort of profound transformational insights from Locke come from his natural philosophy stuff do i do you think i have that wrong no i think there's i no i don't i think you're you're, you're definitely on to something i mean i think that the thing with Locke is that um it, you know the primary means of transmission is probably through the glorious revolution right sure 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 sort of and this idea of you know uh popular consent and i think that um with madison in particular um I don't see Madison as some great Lockean liberal so much as I see him more as endeavoring to update classical republicanism mm-hmm. for, you know, not, not only, you know, in the extent of his, you know, Federalist 10, which is sort of his piece de resistance is, is sort of um, his solution to the nettlesome problem of republicanism. But then also his, his post-war um, 
You should, for listeners, because republicanism confuses a lot of people. Yeah. Give, give me a, a basic definition. I really like Lincoln's adage in the Gettysburg Address, government of the people, by the people, for the people, right? So republicanism comes from Cicero, means it, uh, the public thing, right? The government is the people's concern, right? And so at this point in – and the people are the government's concern. Too. Right, exactly. And so by the, it, by the time the 1700s, the general sort of bent of republicanism in the early modern period is that the people have – the government should be – a republican government not only governs on behalf of the people – but um, and for the good of the people, but also has some form of pu- public participation within it. Um, and so the English had b- they believed that they were a successful republic because they had the House of Commons that then was sort of balanced with the House of Lords and the monarchy. So the idea would be a balance between the two. And the, the great Republican revolution in America is doing away with any kind of balancing and redesigning government so that only the people rule, right? So this is the great thing. And I, I see that- Against monism. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Locke's system of government, right? Locke's system is compatible with monarchy, right? Locke was Locke didn't want to get rid of the monarchy. He just wanted to get rid of the Catholic monarch and bring in a right. Protestant monarch. So, um, But there's nothing in Locke- this is one of the reasons why a lot of conservatives of a certain generation don't like Locke. There's nothing in Locke itself that says the people can't be tyrannical or despotic, right? right. There's no inhibiting, limiting principle to uh, people voting to burn people alive or whatever. Right. Locke, right. And yeah, that's right. And more generally, Locke is Locke, the second treaty is a, is a document of insurrection, I think. Right. right? Um, and so especially when it comes down to the – I mean Locke is very useful for in 1776. He's not useful in 1787, 1788, right? Like so for instance, um, there's um, – you know, uh, it, it, this is you – know, Madison's, Madison's relationship with Locke, right, would be illustrated I think. In 1788, the uh, New York uh, ratifying convention, they don't want the, – the delegates in New York don't they, – they don't want to join the 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 um the the new nation they're skeptical um and one of the things that they suggest is well we could ratify conditionally on the promise of amendments and if the new government doesn't implement them we could leave mm-hmm. and hamilton writes madison a letter saying well what do you think about this and madison says that's not going to work if you're in, you're in for good. There's no getting out. And it's very Lincolnian in that sense, mm-hmm. right? That and Lincoln is not very Lockean, right? You're right. in, it, it's a union, that's it. There's no, like, once you join, you can't leave. It's mm-hmm. once in perpetuity, right? And, and sort of like, and, and because there's problems with the idea of like a government as a contract, especially in terms of like, well, who's going to, who, who's the judge that you go to right. to determine whether or not one of the parties is in breach, right? There's no judge, right? So uh, that was a very useful sort of construction for the purposes of the declaration. But when you get to actual nation building in the 1780s, it's not helpful. Right. It's not helpful. It's counterproductive, right? And the anti-federalists are actually kind of – it's not surprising that they're – like the the federalists are sort of leaning on Montesquieu and Hume, who's also mentioned in the in the Federalist Papers, I think by reference. Uh, but the anti-federalists are much more, you know, Lockean in mm-hmm. that sense, right? All right. So 
I, I actually, I have no idea if listeners are in, as into this conversation as I am, but I, this is, this is, this is my grind. I like this stuff. <laughs> and speaking of good conversations, uh, this week's episode of The Remnant is brought to you by Conversations with Bill Crystal. If you're not aware, and you all should be aware, my friend Bill Crystal has a terrific series called Conversations with Bill Crystal. It's on YouTube. It's also a podcast. It's on iTunes. You can, you can subscribe there or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Bill's conversations include a wide range of interesting topics and a diverse selection of guests from Dick Cheney to David Axelrod. They've done more than 100, and it's an impressive list. So just to name a few, there's Clarence Thomas, Gary Kasparov, Peter Thiel, Ben Sass, Christina Summers, Charles Murray, and uh, this guy. That's meaning me. You can watch any and all of Bill Crystal's conversations, our, our conversations with Crystal on the website, conversationswithbillcrystal.org. You can subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts to be notified of new releases every other week. So if you like my podcast, and if you don't, why are you listening to this? <laughs> you'll enjoy Conversations with Bill Crystal. Have you done Conversations with Bill Crystal? I have. Yeah. They, yeah. So fun. you can go back and, and look in, 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 the, uh, in the spring of uh, 2016 where I assure people that Donald Trump will not be the nominee. <laughs> but you had moved out of polling at that time. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, it's like Michael Corleone in the Go in Godfather Three. As soon as I'm out, they pull me back in. <laughs> Take it away from it. So, where to begin with the rank punditry? <laughs> um, uh, what is your general? Uh, what is your general assessment of the current state of the Republican Party? Um, you know, look, the I don't know. I mean, we were talking a moment about Disraelis muddling along. I think that's sort of how both political parties operate. I think that the Republican Party is – this government under Trump has been more conservative than any Republican government since 1981, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, if you compare what Trump has done to what George W. Bush did during his – uh, tenure and his efforts to bring about, um, you know, uh, compassionate conservatism where you really see the expansion of government. Um, here we're not seeing a contraction of government, but we, we are not seeing the expansion, mm -hmm. which is noteworthy because government, and this is one of the problems, you know, when people say, oh, everything went to hell in a handbasket when they repealed the 17th Amendment. And it's hyperbole. But there is something to be said. Repealing the 17th Amendment, now everybody who's in the government has an interest in expanding it, right? Mm -hmm. There is sort of a conflict of interest within the government. Um, and so this is, I think, a big reason why Republicans end up expanding it. And I think it, it says something that the government hasn't really gotten bigger, you know, there's no real drive. Well, we have to do this big new social welfare program to get these voters that we're targeting voting for us rather than the Democrats right there. So there's no Medicare Part D. There's no no child left behind, you know, you know, so things like that. So I think that that says a lot. I think it's it's noteworthy. No, I think it's noteworthy. And um, I mean, look, I, I, I go back and forth. There's a there's a. It's funny. No one wants to have the debate, but there is an in an inherent conflict of interpretations that informs a great deal of the arguments about what's going on. And that is how much of this stuff is because of Donald Trump and how much of this stuff is despite Donald Trump. Yeah. Right. 
And what I mean by that is like, of course, look, he's the president. So he gets credit for the things that happen when he's president. Right. I mean, so Supreme Court picks, good Supreme Court picks. Right. Uh, good. For the most part, as I understand it, most of the appellate court stuff is good. There are a couple iffy ones, but for the most part, they're great. And also the rate at which they're doing it, too. Is right. Really good. So that's great. A lot of credit for that. If you're going to do it as an objective matter, kind of goes to Mitch McConnell. Yep. Right. He's the one who really did screw the Democrats with the Merrick Garland thing, which was, uh, I, I tip my hat to it. I'm glad he did it. I understand at the same time while the Democrats are pissed about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, that was bold. That was uh, really risky. He took a lot of heat for it. And yet he's constantly demonized as the establishment. And and so there are some things I think Donald Trump has done that he that only Donald Trump would have done. Moving the embassy to Jerusalem is probably the best example. Yeah, I right. Agree with that. Um, but uh, and there are a few others. I mean, I think some of the thing, some of my hardcore environmental regulatory po- people say that the 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 myth that Pruitt was doing amazing things at EPA is, I don't say it's a myth. The the story that he's doing that he was doing all of these amazing things at EPA has been somewhat overblown, and that the real nitty gritty stuff was not being dealt with in part because he didn't know how to manage a deep staff but i think we can all say that the the pace of deregulation all that was is great some of that stuff i think probably doesn't happen without trump but that's in part because there are a lot of sort of mainstream types who trump couldn't hire because they opposed him and so they went to some hardcore sort of think tanky types who went for the long ball and their attitude is I don't know how long this thing is going to last. So I'm just going to start swinging the machete at the red tape as fast as I can. Right. And so part of the problem there is that Trump's not managing this stuff. He's basically not minding the store and he's letting these guys run wild. I'm glad he is. But um, this idea that he's got this vision that he's imposing on all these kinds of things, I think is sort of uh, unproven. But, you know, to get on the Supreme Court point, one of the things that, you know, yeah, you won't hear this from Sean Hannity, but this is a huge victory for the Trump skeptics because it was people like, I don't want to drag you in, but it was people like me and, and, and thousands of other, millions of others, right? Normal Republican voters who liked the idea of Trump the disruptor, hated the idea of Hillary winning, but at the same time were nervous that this guy was going to like uh, sell out to the Democrats and trade Supreme Court cases, Supreme Court seats because he doesn't care about that Put stuff. Put his sister on the court. Put his sister on the court. And so this list, which really was the establishment, the conservative establishment saying this is a transactional thing. You got to do what we are saying here. And because he agreed to do that, the Trump skeptics got on board uh, as a, an electoral matter. Right. And, you know, but if you listen to sort of the, the a lot of my colleagues at Fox, for instance, it is this implicit th- there is this expressed assumption that you know Donald Trump is passionate about originalism and 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 textualism and 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 uh and i think that's all nonsense it's okay that it's nonsense in the sense that he's getting he's doing the good stuff but so this is sort of my core problem is that you know last night i was on martha mccallum's show and she asked me you know does a second supreme court justice mean that maybe you were wrong i heard that interview yeah, yeah and i have i have no problem with the question I have a problem with this idea that I speak for all never Trumpers. You know, I'm not on their mailing list. I don't, you know, um, but, uh, and I don't call myself a never Trumper. But my position, which I didn't have time to really get into, is that if you voted for Donald Trump 
because you were voting against Hillary Clinton and you cared a lot about the court, of course you're vindicated for doing that, right? right? Because you got what you wanted. Hillary's not president and you're getting conservative justices. But that doesn't mean I have to like his protectionism. That doesn't mean I have to like the way he conducts himself or any of these other things. And there is this implied assumption out there that because he's delivering wins, quote unquote, you therefore have to uh, drink the Kool-Aid about, you know, you know, comrade Trump. Right. Dear leader Trump. Dear leader Trump. And I just don't, I don't see the sinew there between right. those things. Yeah. I, for me, you know, I've gotten lumped in with the never Trumpers and I was. Uh, but, you know, my attitude about Trump during the primary was that the guy was going to lose the general election. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we all thought that. Right. I think his campaign thought that. Yeah, I think they did, too. I think that's why they let Chris Christie in charge of the transition because it right. was like a make work, you know, job that didn't really. Maybe, you know. That's why my old friend Kellyanne Conway on Election Day was throwing Ryan Spreebus under the bus for right. not giving her the support she needed. Exactly. Because she thought she was going to lose. Right. You know? <laughs> exactly. And my, you know, and I. My, that was sort of my ultimate frustration, why I ch changed my party registration from Republican to independent, was because my attitude during the convention was that the party bosses or whoever you want to call them thought really and had good reasons to think that Trump was going to lose. And they didn't do anything to keep him from getting the nomination. And what is the point of a political party then except to win an election? This is the point I was making last week on this podcast about the weakness of our political parties. Right, we think exactly. we're more partisan than ever, but the actual parties are weaker parties than ever. Weak. And they're, and that was a weakness too that was built of spinelessness as well, right? Um, I think that with regard to Trump, Trump reminds me a lot of Grant in as president where did grant uh, have bone spurs <laughs> <laughs> no grant so Gr everything that Gr grant is first of all grant's awesome i'm a huge grant fan although i i don't like this sort of uh efforts to resurrect grant's presidency which was a not a good presidency but it doesn't matter because he's still grant i love grant uh, but when Grant gets into office, first of all, there's a couple things about Grant that I think that Trump overlap with Trump is that, first of all, Grant wasn't really sure why he wanted to be president, right? Because um, he'd already saved the – what else are you going to – you know, right. save the union, right? So what's he going to do? Second of all, Grant doesn't really have a lot of background. He doesn't have any background in politics. And so he ends up having – needing friends, right? People to come in because he doesn't have people. And so people sort of end up encircling him. And I think one of the differences is between Trump and Grant is Grant gets encircled by like the um, – the, the political machine, like, uh, y you know, in New York and Pennsylvania, which are not, and Trump gets encircled by like heritage, right? So it's right. much better. Right. But this, the basic point remains is that like Grant didn't have. And he appoints establishment dudes like Brett Kavanaugh. Exactly. <laughs> right. Court. Exactly. Like there, there's something about like outside, being an outsider is useful for electoral purposes, but when you actually, you know, you can't go, you know, Trump still, he, he tweets like an outsider, like as if he's not the president. Um, and I think there's something to be said with this idea of sort of Trump didn't know what he not only didn't know, he didn't know who the players were. And to your point, like a lot of the players didn't want anything to do with him, but he also, I don't think he knew what he, he wanted either. So, and I think that that's been why he's been so good on judges is because heritage and other outlets have been working on judicial like who's good in on the courts here mr president right. here's a list for um they got a bunch of binders on a shelf set ready made exactly sort of like the accusation that the 
that after 9-11, W just looked to the neocons because they had a plan. They had stuff they, ready. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I, But there's drawbacks to that as well. Like, you know, you see there is an awful lot of corruption or whatever you want to call it in the Trump administration. A lot of people have been let go. Uh, a lot of people have resigned. We lost, you know, HHS and now EPA, you know. I mean, it's sort of like this is one of the problems with the president who doesn't have a vision of not just – it's not just a lack of a policy vision. It's a lack of – a vision of governance. How how should we actually run the country? How should it be run? Not just the ends to which it's dedicated, but how it's run. And I, I think that you know one of the other things – and this is why I get so – I'm so tired of these mutual recriminations among conservatives. And you're on that receiving end of this all the time. It drives me crazy. I'm glad I'm more anonymous than you. You get so much garbage thrown at you, right? Where people are like, oh, you were never Trump. Or like, and it's like, if the thing is, is that Trump has done a good job on judicial nominations, but he has done a bad job on tone. Mm -hmm. Okay. He just has. And you go back and look at the founding, like, for instance, John Adams wanted to, you know, we all, John Adams wanted to give a very florid title for the president, right? right? And there's sort of this attitude among a lot of his opponents where this is a high tone to government, okay? Um, but tone matters. The tone matters. The president sets the tone for the civil discourse in the country and for the people to exercise their true sovereignty we have to have a good productive conversation about things and we cannot have a president continually driving people bananas because he's intemperate on twitter which he is and that there is something to be said for there are benefits to having a good tone to the public conversation and i know people say well you know Obama, I don't think Obama had a good tone. You know, just because I didn't like Obama's tone doesn't mean I have to excuse Trump's right. the tone that Trump has had on on the political discourse. And like we're watching, like for instance, you can watch like the left is like losing its mind, mm -hmm. right? Trump is doing that purposefully to them, right? And that is like as you know, sort of like you know, if you like, yeah, Pundit on Twitter is sort of has this sort of great, you know, own the libs thing, like right. comfortably smug does it too. We're going to own the libs, right? Yeah. And I, there's a certain, um, you there's know, a great Twitter account called own the libs, right? Yeah. There's a certain perverse pleasure in owning the libs, right? Mm -hmm. Sort of like as a Steelers fan, I always take really, really great perverse pleasure in watching the Cincinnati Bengals lose. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, but for the purposes of the civil discourse, it is not good to have one side become deranged, right? And it's not good for the president who's on the other side to derange the opposition. Nor is it good for the president, who's the only elected official of the entire country, to talk about his people being good and the other Americans being exactly. bad. And by the way, and Obama had a similar effect on the right, where and Obama spoke in ways that were tailored for educated liberals because he was a politician. He, uh, Obama was not an intellectual. He was a politician for intellectuals, right? right? He cut his teeth as a state senator in Hyde Park, the University of Chicago. So he could fake a 10-minute conversation on Foucault, right? right? That was his great skill set, right? But if you listen to Obama in the words that he used in the way that he spoke, he really systematically made the opposition 
seem like they're the bad guys, mm-hmm. right? And that ha- poisoned the discourse. And Trump has increased the level of poison in the discourse. And now I think that to a certain extent, there's always going to be that we're the good guys, they're the bad guys. That's just the nature of po- politics and democratic society, right? We, for some reason, we seem intent on using martial language. I don't know why, mm-hmm. but we do. Right. And and to a certain extent, the president as the leader of a party is going to be entangled in this. But a president should endeavor to temper that, to rise above it, to find ways to speak to the country as a whole. Right. And I think in in my lifetime, we've had very fractious presidents. I think Clinton was a very fractious president. Uh, You know, after the Oklahoma City bombing, he went out and blamed talk radio. Right. Right. Um, you know, and when when he was, you know, uh, basically having an affair with the intern, he sent his wife out onto the Today Show and accused his political opponents of conjuring the whole thing when it was true. Right. Um, but there is for me in my lifetime, the image that I have of a president actually speaking for the nation would be, you know, George W. Bush at, on the rubble of the World Trade Center. Sure. Right. And because like, like New York City voted like overwhelmingly for Al Gore, like it was like 85, 15 and he still goes down there and all those firefighter guys, probably a big chunk of them voted for Gore, but it didn't matter. Right. right? And he goes and he throws that pitch out at Yankee Stadium and it didn't matter because he's the, he's the president, period. You know? Right. And I think like increasingly we, you know, Obama sort of had moments, moments of like that. And he the post Gabby Gifford speech yes, was, was really one one of the very few speeches that I praised. Well, right, yeah. where he and uh, the the real problem I think with Obama is that he always fancied himself being like that, but he actually wasn't. Right, and so when the right was like, "You're not actually like that," he took it as proof that the right was not even worth dealing with. Right, right. it's very bizarre. Trump doesn't even Trump doesn't even care about that stuff, and and so while we're like praising. You know, praising Trump for the Kavanaugh pick. I'm not just being, you know, a, you know, a ninny talking about tone. Tone matters for the purpose. It doesn't matter in terms of direct policy benefits, but it matters for the discourse, which itself is essential for self-government. Yeah, so I'll, I'll take it a little, a little further. I, I agree with you about the tone um, entirely, but you know, I, I just wrote this book that subscribes in large part to Deirdre McCloskey's argument that rhetoric shapes the civilization that you're in, right? right? And we don't need to rehash that for listeners who've heard me talk about that a million times. But you said earlier that government isn't getting bigger, right? And I generally agree with that. But the fundamental understanding of what a president does and how the federal government works is being the rhetoric about that, right? So the understanding that we have about what it means to be a conservative and how to how to do policy is changing dramatically under Trump. And it is becoming historically much more like uh, progressives like, to a certain extent, Obama, but also uh, FDR, right? It is this idea, very Hamiltonian, that an individual has the intellect and the knowledge, right? It's, it's a complete... You know, if 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 you can make a flag of Friedrich Hayek's uh, the uses of knowledge in society, Trump would be burning it every day, right? He thinks he's he's smarter than all his advisors. He's smarter than the market, right? That's all that protectionism stuff. Yep. That 
through sheer he doesn't talk about conservative ideas much unless it's on a teleprompter in front of him instead his hallmarks are all strength and will mm -hmm. that the elites are all stupid that constr artificial constraints by which he means all constraints upon his will prevent him from maximizing the public good which he alone can recognize this is not how conservatives traditionally have understood the role of a president you know it gets Trump is very much like what I was talking about in terms of his rhetoric, Herbert Crowley's idea of the Statue of Liberty, that simply through, uh, you know, his own sort of personal intellect and instincts, because he always talks about his instincts and his good brain, he has no use for briefing papers. He has no use for old arguments. He has no use for philosophy. He has no use for traditional understandings about the role of government. And instead, it's very much, I mean... The problem is he is 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 time horizons are so bad and his self discipline is so bad, but at the rhetorical level, at the sort of fundamental sort of the the, the metaphysical level, it's it's an argument about strongmanism, yep. right? And he doesn't have the will or the desire or the energy to actually or the support, right? I mean that is one of the great things about the establishment and the lit and the Federalist Society and and the Heritage Foundation and and all the rest is that. They actually constrain him from doing what he wants. But every now and then, you know, there's an Italian proverb that says uh, uh, the truest things are said in jest. Right. And every now and then he talks about how, you know, hey, isn't it great that Xi Jinping is, you know, president for life? Or um, isn't it great the way the North Koreans celebrate, you know, Kim? And you can kind of tell he's, it's, it's, he has this thing where he makes jokes and he tests audiences to see how they react to it. And, you know, and it's a natural human thing. We all sort of. Sometimes when we, you know, we want the last beer or something like that, we'll make a little joke about it to right. test, right? Yeah, and that way, we actually want it. We really want yeah. it, but someone else is, it may take offense or say, uh, object and say, you had, you know, you had four and I only had one. Right. So oh, I was just joking. I was just joking. You know, that kind of thing. He does that kind of thing about all sorts of authoritarian things. And it doesn't get picked up on, on, on the right very much because no one, no one wants to seem like they're part of the resistance, including me, where the, the, the left takes these things. And says he wants to be dictator. He's a dictator. He's, he's not a dictator. He may want to be a dictator, but he's not a dictator, right? right? And and so, but long term, we've got lots of our elites, including many friends of ours, who have either by sins of omission, by not objecting to any of this rhetoric, or really egregious sins of commission, where they really do say he's the. I mean. I don't understand why more people don't burst into laughter when people say he's the world's greatest negotiator. You know, <laughs> I mean, because it's just this is so patently untrue, right? And but this is and part of it is because of his lizard brain sort of narcissism. He demands praise from his subalterns, right? And so the lesson that people in politics have taken is that if I want him to do the things I want him to do, I have to praise him. The problem is, is that, and that's always been part of politics, right? The flip side is that norm, in normal politics, you also get people to do things you want to do by criticizing them when they do the wrong things. Right. And that has been rendered illegitimate right. in the age of Trump, right? And so I, you know, get all this crap from people because I criticize them when he's wrong. And it's as if they've internalized Trump's own ego about these things and how dare you He's like he's their Joan of Arc or their avatar. He's their the expression of the popular will. It's very much a in the tradition of American populism. You know, we're, what is it? Um, 
who's the guy from All Kings Men? Um, oh, Huey Long. Well, that the Huey Long character says, you know, yeah. uh, your need is is my will, your strength is my desire, or something. Willie Stark. That's right. And that's the relationship that he's got with a lot of people. And a lot of people are faking it, but that's the ethos that we have. That is doing long term damage. Yeah. To what we understand to be limited government, right? If if we are now bought into the idea that Napoleons are what really get things done, even though Trump really isn't a Napoleon, that's a really going to be a hard thing to unwind in the future. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that, you know, one of the things that I don't like about the sort of the way Trump has altered the conservative discourse, right, is that, you know, I was, as you know, I, I was a, a major critic of the political establishment on the, in the Republican Party yeah. prior to Trump, right? That, I mean, I think that the Republican caucus in Congress has been, I think that Congress as an institution is in dire need of reform and that it, the way that it functions on a day-to-day basis is like oligarchy, mm-hmm. where it is most responsive to the people who live around the capital city, which by the way, Madison would hate. And I always think to myself, wherever Thomas Jefferson is right now, I hope he's not Im- embedded in his memorial. He would hate being here. Yeah, he yeah. hate this place. Yeah. Um, that the wealthy and the powerful use the government as tools to entrench and maintain their wealth and power. Um, and that the Republican Party came in in 1994 promising to clean that out of Congress and Congress ended up just corrupting the Republican Party, I think. And I don't mean like, oh, they're all crooks are on the take. I'm talking about institutional relations, right? That these are institutional problems. This is not a story of good guys versus bad guys. This is institutions becoming less and less Republican. And so I have for a long time been deeply sympathetic to the populist instinct that has been percolating throughout Mm -hmm. the American – the right. And I – particularly how immigration became a flashpoint for that because I really also feel like the uh, political conservatives were much more responsive to the interests of the business community rather than the interests of the entire Republican electorate. And all of these things end up creating Trumpism, right? Um, And so my view is that just because I think Trump is a problem doesn't mean I'm apologizing for the way things were working. Oh, I agree with that entirely. And that's, to me, one of the things that really bugs me about this discourse is sort of like you're either with the swamp or with Trump. And it's like, no, I think that the sw- I've been railing against the swamp. I was writing a- against the swamp when Trump was writing checks to the swamp, right? right? Uh, but I think that it, the but that just doesn't mean that Trump is the cure for the swamp. He's he's an alternative to it. He's also, he's also a symptom of he's, uh, a symptom. he's a symptom of a lot of our problems, not the cause of yeah, them. That's not the, yeah. And and so we're gonna, we need to wrap up soon because we're going long. Um but uh although I don't really care. Um <laughs> So this is a recurring theme on this fully functional podcast of uh, how Congress, to borrow a term from social science, sucks ass these days. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, uh, and it has basically become, you know, my phrase for it is a parliament of pundits. Right. And in fact, I heard Durbin on Morning Joe this week who says, who said, I swear I'm not making this up. He said something along the lines of, um, look. This is a question that we owe it to our viewers 
to address. And then he kind of caught himself a minute later and says, and our voters. <laughs> and, but, uh, you know, Congress has basically abdicated on this vast swath of things, right, that the founding fathers never kind of imagined. And um, you know that stuff much better than I do. So one of the things I've gone back and forth about is whether or not getting rid of earmarks was a bad idea. And I've actually talked to Paul Ryan about this. And Paul says that, you know, the problem with the earmarks thing was that the culture of the kind of politicians you were attracting who were in it to get something rather than do something. And I, 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 I certainly think that's certainly plausible and was true. But at the same time, sort of on the Hamiltonian argument, right? One of the things that made Congress function was the fact that the leadership had the ability to reward people and to punish people. And one of the Contract with America things, which obviously I was in favor of at the time as a young in here, it got rid of a lot of those tools. Yeah, it did. And it seems to me that if you could bribe every member of Congress with a billion-dollar bridge or rec center or wherever the hell it is in exchange for, say, entitlement reform, that would be something. That would be saving penny. You know, it would be the cost would be pennies on the dollar in terms of saving to the federal fisc, right? What do you think about bringing back something like maybe not the way it was done before, but something where the the give the speaker the power to actually run yeah. Congress? Yeah. Well, I think on the penny wise pound foolish front, um, I mean, look, we, the the Department of Agriculture has more employees than Congress does. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. And it, especially when you consider that, like a, a like forty percent of congressional staff is in the is in the is in the districts basically fielding calls about social security right congress is all we have this sort of tendency like benjamin franklin was like oh we shouldn't pay them anything right um and that was hamilton's was sort of point was we rely too much on pure patriotism mm. this has been one of our errors during the articles of confederation um the problem with earmarks though so that in principle, I'm in favor of a system of rewards, but also punishment. So I think that the a lot of those House Freedom Caucus guys, sometimes they just need to get their committee seats. Yeah. You know, seriously, enough's enough. Yeah. Got to get immigration reform done. Right. You vote for this or you can kiss your spot on em energy and commerce. Goodbye. I'll just stack you on the post office committee. You tell me what right. you think about that. Right. So I'm in favor of sticks. Mm -hmm. The problem with earmarks is that they were never designed to be a good carrot because what would happen is that under the old regime, the requests were made to the appropriations subcommittee chairs and they would just get inundated. So it really wasn't a tool. It was sort of just everybody kind of just like ended up just taking advantage of it. And mm -hmm. it just ended ended up being wasteful if we were to if we were to redesign it in such a way that the leadership could actually re use earmarks to reward people as opposed to just indiscriminate grants like and this is sort of the it's sort of the illustration i like to use about earmarks is i think that in 1989 highway bill they used earmarks to bring over the wavering members, mm -hmm. right? But that the highway bill has to get reauthorized every four years. So four years later, what happened was all the members were like, well, I'm, 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 I'm wavering. Right. You better give me something. That's the That was the problem with it. And why you see like the, the trend line on earmarks is like exponential. It goes yeah, like yeah, this, yeah. right? Yeah, like yeah. it just, it because once the members get, catch wind that there's 
there there are goodies to be had if they just claim to be wavering. Right. So the problem with the earmark regime was that it was too decentralized. Mm-hmm. It, said it, was, it was all operated under the auth- particular authorizing committee and then the appropriation subcommittees as opposed to like leadership itself. Like it was never up to It was to an bang. entitlement system rather than yeah. a patronage. Yeah. And it yeah. speaks to the sort of the tension where the House is simultaneously has this centralized organization with the leadership, but also these decentral- this decentralized committee system. And my personal view is I would like to see the House particularly, but also the Senate as well, frankly, uh, become more centralized under leadership. So tools, like I'm in favor in principle of giving carrots and sticks to the leadership, but it really, it depends on how we do it, right? So like a lot of these calls said, we need to bring earmarks back, really the devil's in the details, I would say. No, I'm totally open to that because I do think, I, 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 I think Paul was right about or yeah, Speaker Ryan right. was right about the the problems that it, the culture that it created, right. and, and Gingrich was right about the messed up culture in the yeah. house at the time. Yeah, but you can throw babies out with bathwater, right? Yes. And you know, so and I'm totally open to sticks. I mean, if if you want to, you know, maybe your first two terms in Congress, you have to wear a pain collar, right? And you know, the <laughs> speaker can activate it, right. you know, like as in Gamesters of Triskelion or something like that. That'd be fine with me. Yeah, you know. Too. Um, and you know, and if every now and then, you know, some member of Congress's Congress's seat just vanishes through the floor, and you just hear lions roaring, right? That's, that's fine okay. too. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's okay. All right, so uh, we've run long. I do want to ask uh, one last question, which you're probably unprepared for. What is your weirdest pet obsession, theory, peeve? Right? I mean. Goofy idea, right? I have a bunch of these things. Okay. So one day we're going to do a whole episode on them. But like, um, I want to give letters of mark to computer hackers on the outside to go after various countries, right? Piracy is in the Constitution. Right? Yeah, you know, it's yeah. there is a, it is a constitutionally authorized thing. Uh, my dad gave me this idea when I was a little kid, and it stuck with me that we can solve a lot of our environmental problems if we just shrunk people down to very small size. You can come up with all sorts of these sure. things. I got lots of them. I, I want the Pope to have. Uh, papal armies again that will serve as like fighting peacekeepers and actually do good things around the world. I'm still a fairly passionate defender of the Habsburgs. Um, so uh, you can be whatever you want it to be. All right. What, 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 what is a weird obsession that you've got? I think that we should outlaw air conditioning in Washington, D.C. in the 10 mile square. I'm very sympathetic to this. I would move, but I'm very sympathetic. Exactly. Yeah. They, people would move. Yeah. Because and, you know, that's one of the problems is is we have one of the problems with this city is that it's actually a nice city now. Right. Uh, and it used to be, right, like 100 years ago, there was nothing here, mm-hmm. right? And it would be – and it was all like the Southerners who were in here because they were the only ones who could stand to be here right. during the summer when this place – because it's what, like 92 degrees outside right now. But yeah. we're – this is great. I mean, it's 72 degrees. The thermostat right there says – so it's comfortable. Yeah. And and so to be in the capital city and legislating, it should be made to be more difficult. So outlaw – Outlaw, uh, outlaw air conditioning in Washington D.C. At least in at least in um, private private residences is okay, but in any kind of uh, you know, or at least because you know the Congress could do that too because they have authority over the ten mile square. Right. 
Yeah. You know? So I would say we start like regulating who's allowed. Like we should give like air conditioning licenses to certain businesses, but not others. Right. So like lobbying firms, you, you want to be here in lobby. You have a right to freedom of assembly to petition. But nobody says you it. Nowhere is it written that you can petition. You you can you are you can expect to petition under in 72 degree climate control. I like it. It was a turn a lot of K Street into like a scene from Barton Fink. Yeah. Right? Um, <laughs> you're not you're not alone on this though. Uh, this has been a bugaboo of mine. Krista Muth once wrote about this 15, 20 years ago, and um, and there are some there are some really sort of cause correlations, not causation, bad arguments. This is not Krista Muth, but you know the rise in the federal bureaucracy coincides with the invention of air conditioning. Yeah, but lots of things coincide. Right. With anyway, right. Right. But, right. But I think Demuth was the one who pointed this out that in the 19th century, uh, or for much of the 19th century, the British embassy in Washington would decamp for Maine, the entirety of it, in May and not come back to Washington until like the first week of October yeah. or something like that. Because this place is awful, awful. in the summer. It's and awful. Barone, Michael Barone, uh, our AI colleague, in our country, he has this thing about how People don't realize how backward Washington was until really recently. And that he says in the 1960s, if you want to go to a good restaurant, a really good restaurant, you had to drive to Baltimore to do right. it because there just wasn't one There wasn't here. anything here. Yeah. 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 Um, so I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that. All right. Well, Jake Haas, thank you for, uh, for taking the time and congratulations on the book. Thank congratulations you. on your status here at AEI. Thank We're you very much. delighted to have you and uh, hope to have you back on the show. Sometime. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks, Jonah. All right, so uh, uh, normally I would do this closing thing after our guest had left the room, but in fact, Jay is just very quietly sitting in the corner, so we can't usually do the do the normal dissection of what he had to say between me and Jack, because it would be rude. Um, but Jack, you said something about how the the Free Beacon podcast has been subtweeting me, or is it going after what what's going on there? Uh, there was they publicized a positive review. Of the uh, right and writer that is uh-huh. uh, of themselves, and and the selling point of their podcast was its lack of Bigfoot erotica, ah. according to this review. Yeah, which is not a selling point. That is a demerit. Uh, that's a reason not to listen to it. Uh, so yeah, and, and and frankly, you know, I think one of the best and most trenchant criticisms of this podcast is that we have not been consistent in our promotion of of Bigfoot erotica. Um, well, you've which, not been consistent even in saying Bigfoot erotica. That's true. Every now and then, what is the other thing I say? Barefoot erotica. Barefoot erotica, which is a completely different genre um, that I'm not really all that into. Um, I'm not into Bigfoot erotica either, but um, I just want to make it clear it's not a Freudian slip. A Freudian um, slip is when you say one thing, but you mean your mother. <laughs> <laughs> that's not bad. Uh, I should also have pointed out in, in this week's episode, uh, in our conversation with, with Jay Cost that Jay is the co-host of Constitutionally Speaking with uh, Comfortably Smug. I'm sorry, that's not true. It's with Lucas Thompson, who claims not to be Comfortably Smug, the uh, anonymous Twitter handle. And I want to say thanks to everybody for their continued reviews. Um, we are getting the... I, I've told people that if they send me a self-addressed stamped envelope, I will send back a signed book plate for 
uh, Suicide of the West. I'm happy to continue to do that. You just send it care of the American Enterprise Institute. There is a backlog of these things because I've been traveling so much, but they're all coming. Um, a couple people have just sent whole giant envelopes addressed to themselves on the assumption that I'm going to send them a free book. I, I want to be very delicate about this. I'm not. <laughs> um, but uh, if you send me a book with the postage and stuff to send it back, I can sign the book itself too. Again, send it to American Enterprise Institute. Uh, thank you to everybody for the reviews on, on iTunes and stuff. I haven't been hectoring you about that stuff. And in the meantime, some podcasts in National Review World and elsewhere have been creeping up on us in iTunes ranking. This cannot last and be sustained or tolerated. So if you so if you can subscribe at wherever you subscribe to podcasts, that would be great. If you could review us at iTunes positively, I hope, um, that would be great. I'm not saying unsubscribe to our you know lesser competitors because that would be wrong. Um, but if we want comparative advantages here at all things. And um, thanks again for listening. Jack, do we have anything else that we got to do? I don't think so. Well, there's always things to do, but we don't need the world to know what they all are. That's, that's, that's probably true. And how's, how's your podcast going? Oh, it's going. It's, maybe <laughs> it's one of those competitors that's sneaking up on you. Well, the thing is, I have leverage over you. So <laughs> um, you say I'm, that now. I do. No, look, I mean, it's entirely possible that the, you know, you know, that you will one day become the master. Um, and uh, Now I am the master. <laughs> um, but I, 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 by that point, I'll be in retirement. So um, I hope you're not going to rely on Social Security for your retirement because that's not going... Well, no, you'll probably get it, but I won't. No, you'll never get it. That's yeah, right. thanks a lot. Yeah. And, and, and frankly, nor should you. All right, so thanks again for listening. Uh, more coming next week. We're going to uh, hopefully, when things finally start to calm down, we're going to hopefully do up the frequency of some of these things. Oh, and also exciting news. I th- did I mention this last week? At the end of the summer, I am my fam- the Goldbergs are renting an RV. Yeah, you did. And we're going across America, and uh, hopefully we'll do some uh, podcasting from real America. So uh, until next time, thanks for listening. I'll see you on the next episode of The Remedy. Master.